Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Now, in our last study of Ruth, we saw how this book opened with the very important words, now it came to pass in the days of the judges that ruled, there was a famine in the land, and then it said, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So in that verse is an all-important description of this man of the house, the patriarch of the house, the one who's leading them all out. He's identified in verse 2. We know his name is Elimelech. But here he's described as a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. He's not just any person. He's identified as a certain man. This whole book, as we're getting into it here, is going to be all about a certain man named Elimelech, a certain man named Boaz, a certain woman named Naomi, a certain woman named Orpah, a certain woman, especially a certain woman named Ruth. And each person in this book is a certain person. And the book is made up of the, what we look see the whole book together, it's a history of all of these certain persons. And those certain persons were faced with their, with their own particular challenges and what each of those certain persons did in response to those different challenges, it defined those certain persons, which is what we're going to focus on, especially as we study about Ruth, but in the whole book of Ruth. And not all those certain persons responded in the same way, but all of those certain persons were all different And they all responded differently to the challenges that were set before them, that God allowed into their lives. And it's this collage of these all these certain persons that make up for us this wonderful book of Ruth. And not everyone in our lives responds in the same way, but it's the collage of all these certain persons in our lives that makes up our lives. And the reason this phrase in verse 1 is so important, a certain man, is because that's how God sees people in life. God sees people as certain persons. God does not see all people the same. God sees each person, like it says in verse 1, as a certain man over here, a certain woman. And that's why I told my dear Orthodox Jewish friend, Rich, last week, he came to visit me, and he kept talking to me about we Jews, we Jews. And I kept saying to him, Rich, don't think of yourself as a Jew. Don't talk about how we Jews have suffered and survived and how much we've achieved in the world. Don't talk about how we Jews like Bernstein made West Side Story or like Einstein discovered the theory of relativity because God sees each person not as a Jew, not as a Catholic, not as a Baptist. God sees each person standing alone before him, stripped away of any group, stripped away of any association. And I told my dear friend, God does not see you as a Jew. 
He sees you as a certain person, a certain person named Rich. He sees me as a certain person named Tom. And no Jewish person should ever think that he or she can hide behind the drape, the curtain of being a part of the Jewish people or of being a Jew because God only sees individuals. He doesn't see Jews. And each individual has to stand before God alone. And no Catholic person should ever think that he or she can hide behind the curtain, the drape of being a Catholic of being a Catholic because God only sees individuals. He doesn't see Catholics. The only individuals stand before God, each one alone. Same for Baptists. No Baptist should ever think he can hide behind the curtain or the drape of being a part of the Baptist or being a Baptist because God only sees individuals. He doesn't see Baptists and each individual has to stand alone because in God's sight, he does not broad brush everyone in a group. He sees every person as a certain man. And Elimelech is described in verse 1 as a certain person. And the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to every certain person that's born. No matter if he's born in a mansion in Bel Air or if he's born in a mud hut in Ethiopia. The same Lord Jesus Christ speaks to every person as a certain person. And that's what's meant in John 1, 3 through 4, where it says, all things, sorry, John, John 1, 3 through 4 and 9, all things were made by him, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Another way to describe the Lord Jesus Christ from John 1, 9 is to say, He is the true light which lighteth every certain man that cometh into the world. The Lord Jesus Christ is the true light, and He brings light to every certain person, every certain man that comes into the world. And he does that because he loves every certain man. And he's not willing for any certain man to perish in hell. And he does that because he will have every certain man to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is what he says in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the repentance. And in 1 Timothy 2, 4 who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Said he as the light, the Lord Jesus Christ is the light. He shines on every certain man. And he, then he looks to see if this certain man, this certain woman, what his response is to the light. And if this certain man responds to the light, then he brings to that certain person more light until that certain person comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, to receive life. So just as the Lord Jesus Christ looks at the response of each certain person to life's challenges, he's looking at each of our certain lives also, and sometimes he sees a certain person who has not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ needs to be saved, and for that person, the Lord Jesus Christ has outstretched arms. And he's saying, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all you who are just worn out. You're exhausted. You labor and you're burdened down. You're heavy laden. He says, and I'll give you rest. And then he sees another certain person who is saved. And that certain person, he's saying to that person, oh, how I wish you would get up in the morning and you would seek me with all of your heart. 
that there would be this tabernacle meeting between you and I in your morning devotion times. And he sees another certain person who is a believer and has deep problems in his life, deep problems. And he's looking to see, will that believer trust in me, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with all his heart and lean not unto his own understanding? Now, we see from verse 1 that the certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, had a tremendous problem in his life. And that's described as there was a famine in the land. And that certain man made a decision because of the problem. And he decided, that certain man made a decision to forsake the land, the promised land by God, to forsake the land of Israel and to go into the land of idolatry, to go into the land of God's enemy, to go into the land of Israel's enemy, the Moabites. And that certain man decided to leave the place called Bethlehem, or house of bread, and to go to a place called Moab. To a place, that's an awful name, Moab. Moab means, uh, of his father, it means from her father. And what this is referring to is the origin of the Moabite people, which was, the, the Moab was the son of the immorality between Lot and his daughter. And, th- and that's where the name comes from. And so now what we see in verse 2 is that the name of this certain person who made these certain decisions to go there, his name is Elimelech. And Elimelech is two words, and they're joined together. We know, we know the word Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, from Psalm 22, from the cross. Eli is, means my God. And then the word Melech, we know that word, that means king. So Elimelech means my God, king. My God is king. That's the meaning of his name. My God is king. So a certain man has the name of my God is king. And this is all the more dramatic when we put verses 1 and 2 together like this and read through the names. There was a famine and a certain man from the house of bread went to the country with the immoral name of from her father, and the man's name was, my God is king. Isn't that something? And and, and so that's a real problem. That's a problem. Because many certain people experienced the famine. And not every certain person did what this certain man did. Not every certain person left God's promised land to go into a land of idolatry. But the problem was that this certain man's response, he did this, and it made it all the worse because of the meaning of his name. Because his name is my God is king, or Elimelech. And his response to the problem of the famine brought dishonor to God. It, it annulled what his name meant. Because as he walked out of the land of Israel, and he walked away from the Jewish people, and he left the land... And he came into the land of Moab. Everybody saw him do that. They saw, the Jewish people saw the certain man leave. The Moabites saw him come in. And they saw this man. And then they said, who's that? He said, that's the man whose name is my God is king. And the Moabites saw that. Who, what's your name? My name is my God is king. Really? So it shows by his decision that he didn't really believe that. That he didn't really trust God to provide him with food in God's land. 
and they saw this certain man whose name was my God is king, and he shows by his decision he doesn't really believe that God was strong enough or king enough to care for him in the land. And so when verse 2 tells us that the man's name was my God is king, that's a problem. And when we call ourselves Christians and we're saying my God is Christ or my God is the Lord Jesus Christ, and people watch our lives to see if we really do believe, do we really show and believe that God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And people are watching us to see if we really believe that. And the Lord Jesus Christ is God. Is that we believe he's going to take care of us and that I don't have to compromise to, to, to take care of myself. I, the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is God. I don't have to defend my, I don't have to fight. I don't have to take vengeance because he's God. And both the saved and the lost are watching us carefully. And they're seeing if our name matches our decisions in life. Like they looked at Elimelech and they asked the question, is his, his decisions matching his name? And, and, so, and that's why the first statement in verse 2 is so important. The name of this man who forsook the people of God, who forsook the country of God because of a famine, his name is my God is King. So when verse 1 says that he left Bethlehem, Judah, that emphasizes how the man with the name of my God is King was a discouragement. He was discouraging to the people of God who were left in the land. And at the end of verse 2, where it says, and they came into the country of Moab, that shows how this man with the name of my God is King brought dishonor to God among the lost Moabites who needed God. And as both the ones left in Israel and the people of Moab saw this man whose name was my God is king, they all said, I guess he really doesn't believe this God is king. He must not believe it. And the sad fact is that this is the history in the book of Ruth of a certain man whose name was my God is king because verse 3 starts off with his death. Now in verse 3, the spotlight now of our history switches from, switches from Elimelech to Elimelech's wife, Naomi. And we read in verse 3, And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. Now we see in this verse a report of what happened. We read, Elimelech has died. And we find ourselves, when our time machine were there, we're standing with Naomi. And we're standing in front of an open grave with her two sons. It's the grave that's been dug for their father. And their father is in the grave. And they're all looking down. And we're looking down, too, on the body of Elimelech before they cover it with dirt. And they're all saying, we hear them saying, goodbye. And the pain is unbearable especially for Naomi. Elimelech is gone. He's not coming back. That's the message. Job was a man. He, 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 Job was a man who just, he gave a lot of thought to death. He was thinking a lot about death, Job was. And he described death several times with one theme. And it's an idea that he, he kept saying this. And he said it in, in Job 16.22. He said, when a few years are come, then I shall go the way whence I shall not return. So he says, thought. I'm going to go to a place. I'm not coming back. And in Job 10.21, he, he said, before I go, whence I shall not return. So he said, I shall not return. He, 
and the Job 7, 9 through 10, as a cloud is consumed and vanisheth away, so he that goeth down to the grave shall not come back. He shall return no more to his house, neither shall his place know him anymore. And King David, speaking of the death of his newborn son, said in 2 Samuel 12, 23, but now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. See, Job, David, same thing. Not return. And David's words, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me, is brought out by one word in our passage here in Ruth 1.3, and that's the word left. That's his left. Eli Melech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. It's an awful feeling. It's an awful feeling after a person walks out of a hospital room or walks out of a bedroom and a loved one has just died. It's awful. It's a feeling that I'm left. It's a believer. The believer can say of a believer with a measure of joy, a measure of sweet joy. I remember so much when Mike Johnson uh, spoke about his reaction to the death of his sister Joy and then of his his brother Larry. But he, he spoke about it. He says, yes. You could say, I know that he or she is in a better place now. And it's true. And the believer can say to the believer, I know that he or she is all right now. He's healed. And it's true. And the believer can say, but the believer can also says with King David, about, he, says, he says, I shall go to him. And that's true. But all the comfort and all the joy of those statements don't take away from the rest of 2 Samuel 12, 23. He shall not return to me. And which is what Job has been talking about. He says, I shall go the way whence I shall not return, and he shall return no more to his house, neither shall his place know him anymore. All the comfort, all the joy of all those statements of what happened to the believer who died, don't take away from the four words about Naomi, and she was left. And those four words in verse 3, and she was left. And as we stand there next to her, we feel the emptiness of it all. And we feel the hollow feeling in the stomach like when you've lost your most valuable possession on earth. And it's a terrible feeling. And the strongest part of Tim LaHaye's book in his series about the tribulation was the title, Left Behind. And because those two words, they're terrorizing, left behind. And the terrorizing feeling is what we feel when we read these four words in verse 3. She was left. In verse 3, after the word left, there's a terror. You know, it's, you, can put, you can fill in a blank there. It's not good. You can fill in a blank and you could say, you could, you could say, really, as we get into verse 3, we can't help but enter it. She was left, and we get the feeling of verse 3, and it actually comes out this feeling of emptiness and fear, and we fill in a blank, and we put in words like she was left behind, and she was left alone, and she was left without a husband, and she was left without the love of her life, and she was left without her best friend, and we don't just read verse 3 and let it go. We fill in the blank in our minds, and we say, and Ellie Melech Naomi's husband died and she was left without a husband to run to, be embraced by, snuggle up to in the hard times of life, and they had him. And in verse 3, you can say, And Elimelech, Naomi's husband died and she was left without a husband to pray with, to go to God together with, 
In verse 3, Elimelech and Naomi's husband died, and she was left without her best friend to talk to, to confide in. In verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband died, and she was left with never hearing his familiar voice saying, I love you. In verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband died, and she was left without ever again being able to kiss him and tell him, I love you. Verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband died, and she was left alone without ever being able to turn to anyone and point to Elimelech and say those words that made her so happy, that's my husband, my husband. In verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband died, and she was left without a husband to protect her. She's a Jewess in a country that hates the Jews. In verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband died, and she's left without a provider, and she's reduced to poverty. And verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband died, and she's left with no hope for her future, which is coming out. So it's terrible, and we feel it in verse 3. And those words, those words, and she was left, and they're not the end of the sentence, in the, the, because it goes on to say in verse 3, it says, And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. So there's four more words in the verse, which are, and her two sons. And as terrible as those first four words are, in verse 3, that she was left, the verse goes on to say, and her two sons. So with those words, we feel how Naomi felt that that this was not a time for her to sink into despair and self-pity. Naomi, the wife, was not needed anymore. But Naomi, the mother, was more than ever needed now. And those four words in verse verse 3, where it says, and her two sons, we feel how the mother, Naomi, kicks into gear. For who? For her two sons. Her two sons. And she doesn't have the luxury of sinking down to grieving for the rest of her life. Naomi, the mother, is now needed. Naomi, the mother, was needed by her two sons when they were babies. And now Naomi, the mother, is needed more than ever by her two sons. And Naomi, the mother, she's got to push aside her personal feelings of great loss, and she's got to be strong for her two sons. Naomi, the wife, she lost her husband. Naomi, the mother, she hasn't lost her two sons, and they need her to be strong. And Naomi, the mother, looks at her two sons, and she longs, you know, like any mother would, for her to you know, make me a grandmother. <laughs> and Naomi, the mother, looks at her two sons, and she wants them to get married, have babies. But at the end of verse 3, Naomi is surviving and she's coping with the loss of her Elimelech by turning her focus from her own personal grief to the prospect of grandchildren. And those words and her two sons at the end of verse 3 show us that Naomi lost her husband, but the little word her two sons shows us Naomi may have lost her husband, but she hasn't lost her two sons. So her life is starting to get going again. And she gives herself to seeing the families of her two sons be built up. And now, of course, the first step to having a family is to get married. So we come in verse 4. They took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. So Naomi sees her two sons take wives. As it says, they took them wives. There's just one problem for Naomi, and that is who they took for wives that says they took them wives of the women of Moab here is a real heartbreak another heartbreak for Naomi when it says they took them wives of the women of Moab that's a disaster 
God specifically forbid the Jewish people from taking wives of the women of Moab. And Naomi watched her sons take wives of the women of Moab. And she remembers what Moses told the Jewish people in Deuteronomy 7, 3-4, when he said, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto her son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. Which is what she saw. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. And in Judges 10, 6, it says the children of Israel again did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Zidon and the gods of Moab. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Sunday Night Church is back. Join Friendship with God Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the new Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for food and fellowship with Sunday evening services to follow at 5.30 p.m. Watch Tom Cantor and the service on YouTube Live located on the Friendship with God website. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher Tom Cantor in a relaxed and family-friendly atmosphere. Sunday Night Church is back, so join us at the Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum at 10946 Woodside Avenue North in Santee, California. For more information, call us at 800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, or visit friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org for the Friendship with God Fellowship. 